0: I've not been trained in the the medical field, but I think a lot of us, over the past couple of years, sort of became uh, amateur um, epidemiologists, you know, reading just, I I must have read hundreds of papers, Um, and what I have found from, you know, the peer-reviewed scientific literature uh, very often seems very discordant with what our public health officials have been telling us, and, you know, that's that's very disturbing. And it hasn't been, uh, we haven't resolved that at this point.
1: Hello everyone, my name is Tim Carone and I am the host of the What's Our Future podcast. I'm a member of the Society of Catholic Scientists and in this podcast I interview other Catholic scientists about their research, how that research fits into some of the big questions we face in church teachings. We also explore my guests' Catholicism, their religious journey, what parts of church teachings they find challenging as a scientist and why. And then finally, we discuss the future of the area of their research as well, future of faith and reason. Today, I interview Daniel Vandenberg, who is a professor at the St. Vincent College in Latrobe, Pennsylvania. Dan is an astrophysicist. He works on extragalactic astronomy and quasars. Uh, specifically, the Sloan Digital Sky Survey and other uh, satellite-based uh, data. So, we'll discuss, you know, what his work is has been and and where he's going with it. We'll discuss his background in in Catholicism and his his uh, faith journey, and we'll talk about suffering and you know how he views faith and reason, uh, how they come together. And then at the end, we talk about the uh, church response to COVID and his perspective on that. This podcast, I believe, is unique. I hope you value it. Please subscribe to the podcast and let us know how much you like it by giving it a five-star review and rating. Thank you. Hi, everybody. Tim Carone with the What's Our Future podcast today. I'm with Daniel Vandenberg who is a professor at St. Vincent College in Latrobe, Pennsylvania. And he's in astrophysics, which was one of my old swim lanes. So it's great to revisit all that. Dan, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So Latrobe, Pennsylvania, you're southeast, southwest of Pittsburgh?
0: Yeah, southeast of Pittsburgh, about 40 miles away.
1: Miles. Okay, so southwest Pennsylvania. All right. But you told me you grew up in Green Bay. Do you kind of mean who, who do, you, do you follow football? Do you do you, have you do you still a Packer fan or?
0: Yeah. So um, keep in mind, I grew up in the '70s when the Packers were not especially good. So actually, uh, it's heretical to say, but I think a lot of people were Steelers fans in Green Bay back then. Uh, and now <laughs> I'm in Steeler country. Uh, I mean, the, the Super Bowl with the Steelers and the Packers, that was great. Uh, so, but uh, yeah, it's, it's fun following both of the teams. So.
1: Yeah, my, my students, it's interesting. I, I find that the day after a Green Bay loss, the attendance in my class goes down, you know, by more than three sigma. You know, it's, it's quite a, a, the passion around here, as you can well imagine, is, is pretty intense. Well, so is it as it is in Steeler territory. That's right. I had one of my fraternity brothers was from Pittsburgh and, you know, God forbid we not watch the Steelers on TV and he came with his jersey and his, his towel and the whole thing. And uh, so, okay. So you then went to from, you grew up in Green Bay, you went to Madison as undergrad. That's right. Okay. So how'd you like that experience?
0: Oh, it was, it was a a good experience. Um, I think I did well at a really big, uh, you know, university. Um, it's very different from where I am now and it just depends on the students, but I I really enjoyed my time there. I mean, I spent, I did spend my time mostly studying, I I should say, you know, so, um, but you know, the time I, I took off to relax or exercise or whatever was also pretty good.
1: Yeah. We went to a a football game up last, last fall against Northwest. I mean, I love big 10 football games just because of all the tradition pageantry and it's just a lot of fun, you know, to go to. So then grad school at University of Chicago, that must have been, a well, they're both in metropolitan areas, I guess, right? So culturally different or?
0: Oh, yeah. Um, so I guess I went from attending what well, I guess is one of the number one party schools in the country to the dead last party school in the country. Uh, but again, I, I didn't spend a lot of time partying, so it didn't make a big difference to me but it's it's a very different uh culturally um yeah people at chicago are there to to do their study to do their work and uh, yeah. so it's it's a bit different yeah and chicago is a different place in madison as well so.
1: yeah you're down sort of south of the city so you have to kind of come to, i mean i'm familiar with um, obviously the city and then the west loop and a lot of the restaurants and stuff over taylor avenue and all but yeah that's I, I really enjoy Chicago a lot. I, mean, I grew up outside New York City, just outside Newark and so I have to be near a big city to uh to kind of be happy. But been to the University of Chicago a few times for some events, give a talk and all. And I, I it looked like a great place to, to to study. Yeah. And now your PhD was in with the Hubble Space Telescope?
0: Yeah. Um so I worked on uh the uh, absorption line systems of quasars, and we can discuss more about that. But it's uh, studying the distribution of gas clouds in the universe and their evolution over time. So that's mainly what I did.
1: Okay. Now, did you actually have to write the proposals and, and all that kind of good stuff? Or
0: Yeah, yes, I did. So as a graduate student, I wrote, um, I think it was probably the third try, uh, I finally got the proposal accepted, and that was, that was great. Uh, very good experience um, to do something like that. And um, so then we got the time on the Hubble Space Telescope, and you know, then you have to gather the data, analyze it, uh, write the paper. It um, you know, takes a long time, but uh, yeah, so it's a really good yeah. experience. Good
1: for you. Now, you had a few postdocs. What can you tell us about those?
0: Yeah, I went uh, first to uh, the University of Texas uh, as a postdoctoral fellow there, and spent a lot of time at the McDonald Observatory in West Texas. Uh, that's a really uh, great experience as well. Um, you know, standing on the top of a mountain in the middle of nowhere uh, at night and seeing uh, seeing the Milky Way, you really get the sense that we live in a galaxy. It's a um, really great experience. Um, gives you depending on your perspective, it gives you a profound sense of meaning and purpose, I, I guess, to the whole, to the whole thing. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um,
0: and then from there I went to, uh, Fermilab, which is, uh, the, the Fermi National Accelerated Laboratory just west of Chicago. And, uh, I started working on uh, a big project called the Sloan Digital Sky Survey when I was at Chicago. And then when I went to Fermilab, I, I spent, uh, most of my time working on that project. Um, And we can talk more about the uh, Sloan Digital Sky Survey as well. Um, But that is uh, one of the biggest astronomy projects in history. And uh, from there, I went to the University of Pittsburgh and really continued working on the Sloan Digital Sky Survey. I then went to uh, Penn State University, where I continued working on that project, but also on a NASA satellite project called SWIFT. Uh, Its primary purpose was to study the um, most powerful explosions in the universe, which are called gamma ray bursts. Um, And from there, I went to where I am now, which is uh, St. Vincent College in Latrobe, Pennsylvania.
1: So, yeah, that's, that's I mean, it's certainly kind of a broad-based approach to doing astronomy. I mean, a a lot of grad students, they'll focus on one kind of technology, whether it's Hubble or an infrared or high-energy X-ray extreme ultraviolet, uh, or in your case gamma rays, but it looks like you got quite the breadth, which is a little, I think it's a little unusual, maybe not anymore.
0: It may be. I think a part of the reason is that, uh, you know, I worked on this big project called the the Sloan Digital Sky Survey or the SDSS, and it was really the first big uh, digital survey of the sky. And, Unlike other fields in physics, when you gather data in astronomy, let's say you're studying a particular galaxy, um, along with the images of the galaxy, you get images of lots of other things, everything else that's in the field. And um, the original purpose of the survey was to map out a large section of the sky in three dimensions uh, and get the positions and distances of about a million galaxies and 100,000 quasars. Uh, But along with that, you have information on hundreds of millions of stars, gas clouds, asteroids, comets, all sorts of other things. And um, you have to learn something about those things if you're trying to um, make the survey run. So that's what we did at Fermilab. We, uh, we analyzed the data there. Uh, so take the raw data from the telescope and turn it into something valuable for Uh, for others to use. So we really had to learn a lot of things that were outside of our field in order to make the survey really valuable to other people. So I had a a good experience that way. I think it was, uh, yeah, a a great opportunity to study lots of other things.
1: Yeah, that was sort of my background too. I did both ground-based optical. I used IUE for doing near far ultraviolet observations. I used a a spectrum on, on both the Voyager spacecraft, we use it to look at stars and, and actually got a detection of 3C273 with it uh, up down to the 912 angstrom Lyman limit. But I also did work in some infrared. So yeah, I, I recognize the u- u- utility of multi-wavelength approach to studying objects. Uh, so it's yeah i'm glad people are still doing it i mean i, I pay attention still to the field and it's it's a, a vibrant area in terms of kind of multi i call multi-instrument uh approach now you're at saint vincent which you said in a lot of ways it's it's unique right
0: uh yes it is it's uh it's a benedictine run college so uh they're um Lots of monks around here. In fact, uh, St. Vincent Monastery is the largest Benedictine monastery in the world. So uh, there are over, I think, over 160 monks here. Um, a good number of them teach in the college. We have uh, one of the monks here teaching in the physics department even. So um, so actually, we have a lot of uh, scientist monks here. Uh, at least half a dozen teaching in the college right now. So that's a um, very unique sort of place. Um, so it's a yeah it's a good place to uh i mean we raised our family here um, um nice place to be
1: all right so let's let's take our dive then into your research um you know this stuff is always interesting to a lot of different people um so i wanna take some time time to do that. And also, you know, it kind of used to be one of my swim lanes, so I'm always curious to what's, what's happened since the time I left. I've tried to pay attention to it, but, you know, I'm not active in it. So let's start off with real basic. How would, how would you define a quasar?
0: Yeah, so quasars are the most powerful objects in the universe. They're so bright that today we routinely find them close to the edge of the observable universe. Uh, We find them in the centers of galaxies, but they can emit more energy per second than the combined starlight of thousands of galaxies. So one of the puzzles of quasars is that this enormous amount of energy output seems to be emitted from a very small volume. So typically something like a billion billion times smaller than the volume of the galaxy that hosts the quasars. So that uh, was a really big puzzle for quite some time. Um, So to put it in terms you might be more familiar with, uh, a quasar can emit more light than a thousand Milky Way galaxies, but from a volume that's no bigger than our own solar system. And um, so that was a puzzle for quite some time. But our current understanding is that they are powered by the accretion of matter onto supermassive black holes through an accretion disk. Uh, we can get into more details of that later, but, but that is the uh, summary of what we know about quasars today.
1: All right, so black holes have always been the the explanation of choice. I think for a lot of years, even long before we could detect them, directly, as, as I guess we've seen now with some of the images coming out um, and other techniques. I know for years it was, it was always an assumption uh, that black holes were, were, the, were the source of the uh, quasar activity. Um, but it was always a, well, that's what we're assuming because we can't think of any other way to generate such prodigious amounts of energy. Um, also, given that quasars are, are variable, and that variation can can be used to determine that the, the light emitting region of a quasar is, is very small, to your point. So, you know, we kind of went from assuming black holes were the source of generation of energy to now we know for a fact. What other things did we learn, say, over the last couple of decades with different satellites, telescopes, the survey, kind of in
0: general about quasars? Yeah, so in the last couple of decades, um, have been marked by some um, some very powerful developments. First of all, we found a lot more quasars uh, over the last few decades than uh, we had known about. So in the late 1990s, we knew about 10,000 quasars in the sky, and especially after the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, we, we now have over a million quasars known across the sky. So a factor of hundred increase. Um, We have also observed quasars with just about every kind of telescope that you can imagine. Uh, Not just telescopes on the ground, but X-ray and gamma-ray satellites in space, uh, ultraviolet telescopes like the Hubble Space Telescope, uh, infrared telescopes, radio telescopes. And what's interesting is that we find that quasars can emit light across the entire electromagnetic spectrum. So, that has given us a lot of clues about uh, the details of how they work. Um, So, the Hubble Space Telescope, for example, uh, has, with its high-resolution imaging, has shown us pretty much definitively that quasars exist inside of galaxies. We see pictures of uh, the quasar and the surrounding galaxy. So, so that was pretty much put to rest. And the ultraviolet capabilities of the Hubble Space Telescope was also very important because uh, the energy generation of quasars seems to peak in the ultraviolet part of the spectrum. So they're most energetic there. And that region of the spectrum is very difficult to observe from the ground. So uh, the Hubble Space Telescope was invaluable for that as well.
1: Uh, yeah, I, I I can remember that during my time in the field, uh, it was never, we kind of went from not obvious to, well, maybe quasars are in galaxies. And we, we did see, you know, obviously evidence of quasar-like activity. Uh, let me back up, right? So quasars are part of a general class of of of, of galaxies called active galactic nuclei, or AGNs. And there's different, different kinds of AGNs. You know, my PhD, I studied Seaford galaxies, which have a demonstrate quasar-like activity, but at a a much reduced energy level. But it it was never clear that quasars were, because there always seemed to be point-like objects and whether or not they were embedded in galaxies. But now you're saying that that's pretty much clear that quasars are in galaxies and that there, is there an implied evolution then from that? galaxies go from, you know, start off with quasar-like activity and then evolve down to what we call normal galaxies with just uh, spiral arms or some structure to it, but also a nucleus made of stars?
0: Yeah, that could very well be the case. Uh, We know from these large surveys of quasars now that uh, they were much more abundant in the past, say, several billion years ago than they are today. And uh, the natural explanation for that is that the fuel source for quasars changes over time. So maybe in the early stages or some, some stage of galaxy evolution, the black hole and accretion disk are being fed um, certain amounts of, of matter. So uh, let's say typically 10 to 100 equivalent solar masses a year is what would be required to power these things. But over time, that fuel source might be depleted and so we'd be left with a uh, maybe an isolated black hole that wouldn't necessarily shine because there's, no, there's nothing fueling it. Um, and we would have just you know what we'd see as normal galaxies today. In fact, uh, we now understand that most galaxies, probably the overwhelming number of galaxies, have supermassive black holes at their centers. So many of the galaxies that we see today that just seem to be normal galaxies were probably quasars at one time in the past and fed their black holes.
1: So let's, let's talk about the accretion disk. How does, how does that, we know it's a, an extended disk or disk like area of gas and dust and stars, but maybe you can explain the process of, of kind of
0: maybe how it forms and then how it powers the quasar. Sure. So the, power source ultimately for the quasars is gravitational potential energy. So when an object such as a star is a large distance away from the black hole, there's a lot of gravitational potential energy there. It then moves towards the black hole and the enormous gravitational stresses on the object might rip the the star apart. And because of conservation of angular momentum, if you you remember uh, basic Newtonian mechanics, um, we expect that this material should form a swirling disk around the, the black hole. It just sort of comes about naturally from the, from the theory and there are observations that support that as well. So this disk of material um, will convert that gravitational potential energy into other forms, such as thermal energy. So viscosity or um, uh, fluid friction in the, in the disk Um, heats up that material to very high temperatures, and then that will glow and give off a lot of uh, radiant white energy. And that's typically how how we think the energy process happens. Uh, Some of the big mysteries though is, you know, I mentioned conservation of angular momentum. Well, somehow in order for that material to fall toward the black hole, we have to get rid of angular momentum. How can you do that if it's a conserved quantity? Well, so that's still kind of a mystery, but, there are mechanisms that have been proposed to do that and uh, eventually somehow this material from the disk migrates towards the black hole and that releases an enormous amount of energy that uh, that we see in the quasar. I
1: guess I have to tell you this funny story about accretion disk so when I was defending my thesis PhD thesis uh, there were five five people from the department then there was my thesis advisor from the Department of Astronomy, and then there was, there always has to be an outside, uh, person outside of departments, and the, the professor I had came from the Department of Electrical Engineering, and so I went through everything, and finally, you know, after about 45 minutes, he said, you know, what's an accretion disk? So I had to sit there and explain to him and draw out the math and explain the physics behind how an accretion disk works. And after about a half hour, he was, he was like, okay, yeah, I get all that. I get all that. And I look over and my thesis advisors fast asleep. So I walk over and I kick him in the foot and he kind of startly wakes. I said, John, you just missed the greatest explanation of accretion discs that was ever been given. He goes, all right, all right, shut up. Cut to the chase. Let's get out of here. You know, so I, um yeah accretion disks have been around for a very long time, have been an object that has been used for in a lot of different contexts. What happens at the event horizon then with when where kind of the accretion disk and the black hole, you know that whole interface? Can you explain kind of how that works?
0: Yeah, well, actually, I wish I could. That's one of the big mysteries of quasars. So what exactly happens as the material approaches black holes? So, Um, For most of the disk, we can use regular Newtonian mechanics to explain uh, what's going on. But as the material goes closer to the black hole, we have to start uh, thinking about general relativity and the distortion of space-time, and things become pretty complicated then. And um, we don't know exactly what happens. Like, So, for example, how far away from the black hole event horizon uh, the material will start to really fall in, becomes unstable. The orbits are no longer nice, um, you know, let's say Keplerian orbits around the, the black hole, but they become unstable and the material starts to fall in. Uh, it's still a, still a big area of, uh, of research today. Um, so, but what happens when the material falls uh, toward the event horizon, uh, that's, that's general relativity. So we get time dilation and length contraction and all these other uh, very interesting things. And uh, from our perspective, uh, the uh, material will never actually fall to the event horizon of the black hole. It would take infinitely long uh, from our perspective. But um, the, the light from that material, if it's still emitting light, would become redder and redder and redder until we can't see it anymore. Uh, we don't have the observations to see what's happening at that scale yet. Uh, so it's still Uh, still really in the realm of theory at this point. And it becomes very complicated because it involves general relativity.
1: So is there a characteristic spectrum to an accretion disk sort of up to that point where where Newtonian and mechanics are are prevalent, Uh, but up to that point before general relativity? Can we calculate sort of a characteristic spectrum for accretion disks?
0: Yes, the, the first calculations of such a spectrum were, were done in the 1970s and um, they hold up pretty well, even today. Uh, it's, the, it's the details that kind of get us into, uh, into trouble. So the broad general distribution of the light energy can be pretty well explained by uh, fairly simple accretion disk models, but there are a number of parameters that we, we don't understand how they work, what their what the parameter values are, and things like that. So there's still a lot of details that we don't understand. Um, in in a sense, the theory is ahead of the observations in a lot of ways. So we don't know which knobs on the on the models we can uh, we can tune, how far we can tune them. Uh, so every time we get a new set of observations, it restricts uh, what we can do with each of those knobs. And so um, that's one of the things we're really trying to do with these multi-wavelength observations and uh, looking at how quasars depend upon various observational properties that we can see. So the general match is pretty good, but in detail, we still have a lot of questions.
1: So why don't we kind of shift now to maybe a deeper dive on your, your research? Uh, why don't we start off with the, the Sloan Digital Sky Survey and how that you know, what your research how your what your research is how it uses the sky survey.
0: Sure, this Sloan Digital Sky Survey was a project uh, started in the late 1990s, uh, and the original goal was to map out digitally a large chunk of the sky for the first time, and from there to do spectroscopy of a large number of objects. Again, about a million galaxies and 100,000 quasars. It surpassed that goal uh, pretty quickly, but it was so successful, not only for the original goals, but for so many other uh, topics in astronomy that uh, kept on going. It has uh, evolved to many other projects and it still goes on today. Um, So again, I got involved when I was a graduate student. I worked, um, in the summers I worked at Fermilab for a little while uh, doing some of the coding for for the project. It wasn't my primary project when I was a graduate student, but then when I returned to Fermilab um, a couple of years after I got my PhD, I worked on the SDSS full-time, again, doing a uh, lot of coding. So one of my primary roles was to determine which objects in the images we were to get spectra for. So gathering spectra for objects is a lot harder and much more time consuming than getting the images. So we have to be selective in what objects we uh, we get spectra for. So that was one of my jobs, is target selection. So going from the images to the targets that we were gonna get spectra for. And that included the galaxies and the quasars and interesting other objects in the sky. So weird sorts of stars. And so that's, that's how I got involved in it. And um, since my uh, graduate work was, mainly focused on quasars and the uh, intervening gas between us and the quasars. I I kind of focused on that as part of my science uh, with the survey and I've been doing that uh, ever since. The survey has found most of the quasars that we know about in the sky. So again, we went from about 10,000 quasars before the survey to now over a million known quasars and the vast majority of those have been found with the Sloan Digital Sky Survey.
1: So as you go back, To earlier earlier epochs or greater redshift, the number of quasars increases. Uh, does, does it follow some sort of a predictable pattern, or is it?
0: I think it's, it's driven mainly by the observations and not so much the theory. So when we look back in time, when you look at objects farther in space, we're looking farther back in time because it takes time for the light to travel to us. So really, when we look farther back in space, we're we're, um, we're looking back in time and we found that there are more quasars in the distant past. And if you go really far back in time, then the number starts dropping off again. So there seems to be this, uh, quasar era where there's a lot of quasars and we don't find as many today. And we have theories that try to explain that. So, and they involve things like uh, galaxy evolution and, uh, the theoretical properties of quasar fueling, things that we that we don't really understand very well yet at this point. Um, but yes, it, it, it definitely shows us one thing that uh, we live in an evolving universe. Um, one of the most fundamental predictions of the Big Bang theory is that we live in a universe that changes over time. And simply by counting the number of quasars over time, we, we see that pretty clearly.
1: So as you look back... Um, You're necessarily looking at uh, what we would say are short wavelengths that have been redshifted to the optical region or or even the infrared. What have you learned about sort of the characteristic spectra of quasars um, at these um, high energies that have been redshifted or or short wavelengths that have been redshifted into the observable spectrum? part of the spectrum.
0: Yeah. So one of the, again, one of the predictions of the Big Bang is that light that's emitted uh, in the distant past is going to be stretched by the expansion of the universe. And so light that starts off at uh, high energies or high frequencies uh, gets shifted toward the red end of the spectrum. And for quasars, that gives us a great advantage because very distant uh, objects, can have their high-energy light red-shifted into the optical part of the spectrum that we can see from the ground. So, uh, it's somewhat ironic that we know more about the high-energy spectra of very distant quasars than we do about quasars that are nearby. And that's just because um, the, those wavelengths have been redshifted into our, our visible uh, sight lines. Um, but again, we have the Hubble Space Telescope and other uh, satellites in space that can observe some of the ultraviolet. Um, so we know that the, typically speaking, the peak of the energy distribution of quasars is in the far ultraviolet. So this would be in the region that is uh, wavelengths shorter than the Lyman Alpha hydrogen emission line. So below about 912 angstroms or so. so that region of the spectrum is, it's difficult to see without using space telescopes, um, first of all, because we can't see it from the ground, but also when these really high redshift quasars shift their light into the optical, there's a lot of gas and dust between us and the quasar that blocks out a lot of that light. So even though we can see those short wavelength, high, high energy uh, photons from the ground, there's so much... Intervening matter that sometimes it, it obscures what we can see, so uh, we have to go to space really to understand that region of the spectrum.
1: And I think one of the things your your research has showed is 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 that uh, the host galaxies of of quasars do contain a significant amount of of uh, stars, uh, potentially younger, intermediate age stars. Is that generally true?
0: Yeah, we find quasars in um, all different kinds of galaxies, but um, this, yeah, the stellar content of the galaxies that host the quasars is still a, a big field of research. Uh, we find galaxies, uh, so quasars perhaps uh, that are triggered by galaxy collisions. So uh, maybe two uh, two galaxies with maybe supermassive black holes that aren't emitting. Uh, might collide and that could send material streaming towards the centers of these galaxies and trigger the quasar um, luminosity once again. But uh, yeah, exactly what causes the material to fall in towards the black hole is still a big area of research.
1: I mean, it's interesting at some point, you know, the stars have to stop falling into the black hole to to achieve what we would call a normal galaxy. Is there any idea? So, because the, the quasars, they evolve from, at least we think they do, from very high energy, high output to something that looks like a normal galaxy, uh, implies that something has to quit feeding, some mechanism stops the accretion disk from feeding the black hole um, so that the, the galaxy can evolve to a more normal state. Any sense of what could cause
0: that? Uh, that, that's a good question and it may have to do with simply the, uh, the density of material that's originally there um, in the in the centers of the host galaxies um, and uh, part of it could be due to the quasars themselves. So we think today that quasars are an uh, really important part of galaxy evolution. Uh, many quasars have uh, high, high speed jets of plasma that are shot out from the rotation axis of the quasars and we think that this material interacts with the host galaxy in such a way to affect the evolution of the galaxy so the star formation rate and the gas content and things like that and that might actually affect the the fueling rate of the quasar itself so uh so so it could be uh in a sense sort of self-regulating uh, we also have the example of our, our own galaxy, which has a supermassive black hole, maybe a couple of times, uh, a couple million times the mass of the sun. Uh, it's not a quasar right now, but we do see stars that are orbiting around that black hole. Um, so we're probably going to learn um, things about that by tying together what we see in the local universe to what we see in the high redshift universe um, and see what that transition what's happening during that transition. Yeah, it's a very uh, interesting epoch in the history of the universe.
1: So where's your your research directed now?
0: So as far as quasars go, I've been studying the ultraviolet uh, spectrum of the quasars. So uh, the Hubble Space Telescope is great, and we we have learned a lot about quasars from its uh, ultraviolet spectroscopic capabilities. But um, unfortunately, it... It looks at quasars one at a time, and it's looked at a few thousand quasars, and you know, as we know now, there are millions of quasars known across the sky. But uh, Hubble Space Telescope time is very expensive, and uh, it's pretty much reached the limit of the, the quasars that I can, can see in, in the sky. And uh, what I've been doing recently is looking at the results of another satellite called Galaxy which is uh, stands for the Galaxy Evolution Explorer. It's also an ultraviolet satellite, but its main job is to take ultraviolet pictures of the sky. So it, it, uh, it took a very uh, deep survey of the ultraviolet uh, sky in two ultraviolet bands. Now, it doesn't give you as much information on each individual quasar, but because it covered so much of the sky, we have a little bit of information on hundreds of thousands of quasars. So one thing I've been doing is taking this information to try to look at the statistical properties of quasars in the ultraviolet. And one thing that we have found is that on average, quasars seem to be giving off a lot less ultraviolet light than what we had thought we learned from the Hubble Space Telescope. And probably the main reason for that is, uh, again, because Hubble Space Telescope time is so expensive, we have focused on what we know are the brightest quasars, the ones that are going to give us uh, a lot of light and good spectra. Well, um, so, but if you focus on the brightest objects that biases you towards the brightest objects and there's probably going to, there's probably a difference in the spectra of more luminous quasars versus less luminous ones. And so with the Galax satellite, we've been able to explore uh, a lot more of the fainter The ones that aren't so bright. And uh, the results seem to show that, on average, quasars are not emitting as much light in the ultraviolet as the Hubble Space Telescope led us to believe. So that's one of the things I've been working on recently.
1: So, in the kind of the bigger picture, right, this sort of always leads to, you know, two questions, right? Do aliens exist? Which, you know, we won't talk about. I always get that question at any dinner party I go to. but the other one is sort of what does this all imply from a cosmological perspective? From a does it it certainly confirms, at least it's filling in some of the blanks around the Big Bang theory. Um, does it is it telling us anything that the recent advances in the field and quasars and all these past few decades is it telling us anything uh, we didn't expect from, say, a the cosmological models, or is it been pretty consistent with what we would expect?
0: Well, I think since we didn't really know very much about quasars to start with, I mean, they were a surprise, um, they wouldn't necessarily have, um, there wouldn't have been any predictions about quasars from the Big Bang necessarily, but they have been very valuable probes of the evolution of uh, the history of the universe. So for example, we, we see that there are more quasars in the past than there are today. So clearly there's, uh, there's evolution of the universe. Uh, and also they're very valuable for illuminating the material between us and the quasar that we would otherwise not be able to see. So we use them as uh, kind of distant lighthouses to uh, illuminate the fog between us and the quasars. And that information has given us a lot of uh, insights into the structure of the universe, uh, the material between the galaxies, and uh, lots of other, lots of other things about the evolution of the universe as well.
1: Do they help at all, or speak at all to the, the challenge of, of identifying what dark matter is and what the dark energy component is?
0: Yeah. So dark matter is um, well, we don't know what it is, but we we believe it's there because of the influence it seems to have on the gravitational influence it has on Uh, motions of galaxies and other objects in the universe and quasars have been very valuable in uh, showing us first of all the dark matter exists uh, and perhaps what it might have been doing over the history of the universe Um, and there are various techniques that uh, uh, using quasars that allow us to do that Um, but yeah dark matter and dark energy are both um, Not only kind of like the Holy Grails in some of the Holy Grails in astrophysics today. Uh, if someone figures out what they are, there's surely going to be a couple of Nobel prizes right there.
1: But the using the quasars as lighthouses to it, it does does it doesn't sound like it helps to identify at least what the dark matter component could be.
0: Well, one possibility is that uh, there is a lot of um, regular matter in between the galaxies that doesn't give off a lot of light. So sort of inert material between the galaxies. Um, <clears throat> and it's showing how much perhaps there, of that type of material there is uh, between the galaxies. And um, so for example, we know that that can't account for uh, the dark matter. So um, non-luminous regular matter between the galaxies is not going to cut it for explaining dark matter. So that's one of the things we, We've learned from this, so we have to look elsewhere. Um, and you know, more broadly speaking, um, every search we have done to find, let's say, non-luminous regular matter has has come up pretty short as far as being able to explain uh, the content of the dark matter. So it probably has to be something much more exotic that we we don't understand yet.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I've always struggled to understand why. Things like quasars, having given evidence for what dark matter is, it, it's, it almost implies that the dark matter doesn't interact with light, which I has never set well with me. But is, is that the implication to what you just said?
0: Yeah. So dark matter is postulated to uh, interact with regular matter only through gravity, not through electromagnetic forces um, or you know, any of the other forces that we know about. So at least not strongly. So um, there is no matter that we know of right now that doesn't uh, really use, uh, you know, interact with electromagnetic forces. May, you know, maybe it's uh, something like lots of little black holes all over the place. Um, so that, you know, that's one possibility. Um, and that would be tied to quasar somehow. But again, searches for such things have been done and it seems unlikely that um, you know regular star sized black holes are really um causing the dark matter
1: yeah that is a that's just a, just it's difficult to understand how there can be something there that that cannot be detected at least in 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 some fashion i mean there's gas and dust um that certainly um removes and scatters light absorbs and scatters light but yeah interesting so All right. Well, let's let's pivot then to, you know, we've spent a lot of time on your science background. Let's pivot to your your Catholicism. So you you started as a cradle Catholic, I guess.
0: Yeah, I was been a Catholic since my baptism as a baby. I've I've always been a Catholic. There's never been a time when I uh, left the church or seriously doubted it and considered leaving. Um, And I credit that to my parents, who were uh, always faithful Catholics. Um, And I've never really had a serious conflict that I've seen between uh, my faith and my science. And again, I I guess I can uh, largely attribute that to my parents when I was growing up. They were both teachers, and so uh, both the faith and uh, education were taken very seriously when I was growing up. So. Uh, I never saw a you know, conflict between the two. Um, probably the thing that kept me on track, though, looking back on it, was um, when I was in high school and I met uh, a girl that I liked, and you know, we, she liked me. We thought maybe there's, there's gonna, you know, we'd like to make something of this relationship, and she wasn't Catholic. She was, she was Lutheran, and so uh, we... Uh, had these long deep discussions about, uh, about faith and you know, arguments really. And um, it turns out that you know in this uh, post- Vatican II era, let's say the, the spirit of Vatican II era, um, our catechesis wasn't especially good. and I would have to say that even the, a lot of the mainline Protestant denominations didn't do a very good job of catechesis either. and we found this out pretty pretty quickly, the two of us. So we decided that we would um, kind of look into this, uh, explore these faith questions together. So we joined uh, uh, Bible studies and uh, uh, discussion groups, apologetics uh, discussions and things like that, uh, and really tried to learn a lot about our faith. And that was um, extremely valuable. Uh, we we both both did learn a lot. We you know, and she's my wife today, by the way. Um, and and as a uh, you know, another story that you know, we won't get into. She's now a Catholic, so you know, in the process, she she converted to Catholicism. Um, but um, so it was very good for both of us, and uh, we continue that today. Um, you know, we we're both very active and. Our parishes. We lead Bible studies. Raised our, cat, our our children as as Catholic as we could, and so forth.
1: Yeah, I imagine. Well, let me ask you this: Do you find other families um, in your circle who who've gone through the same process, or do you see a kind of a wide variety of how you know the people met, married, came to their Catholicism, and raising their children, do you see a lot of um, differences in how that process happened versus how? Because yours is is frankly, fairly um, it's wonderful story, uh, but it's one of the few. I, I mean, I've never really heard anyone with this sort of a background. Usually it's it's kind of bumpy. They have a couple different people they've met that might have married, didn't get married went to the faith, kind of dropped, they came back, and, and so on?
0: Uh, in, in our circles, I would say that there, there's a wide variety of faith stories. But I would say that, um, especially in the, you know, the circles where there are lots of uh, very faithful families, uh, it seems that at least one person's a convert. Uh, that, that happens a lot. So, so that seems to be a probably a fairly common path. Um, and again, I don't know what I what would have happened to me if I had led kind of a comfortable, um, you know, Sunday and holy day kind of Catholic uh, life. I don't know that I would have looked deeply into a lot of these issues. Um, you know, lots of the objections that are raised by you know, Protestants and uh, an atheist. You know, um, so yeah, I, I I don't know what what my life would have been like, but I'm, you know, I'm thankful for what. I had to go through to get where I am.
1: Yeah, it, it sounds like it was a, a, you know, I'll call it a significant learning experience about learning about the church. I mean, far more than uh, I was exposed to. I mean, I, I you know, I, it went I went to a large church where I grew up and we had fairly rigorous faith formation. But then in the 70s, that all kind of fell apart. And then when my kids went through it, you know, I finally yanked them out because it was just so bad uh, that you know they, it, it, they they weren't teaching them about the Catholic Church. It was very, very weak and and I I just yanked them out and and I we we home- homeschooled them on their faith formation. My wife is a convert, she was also Lutheran. Um, but when you when you and your wife were going through this you know process early on, do you remember one or two things that, I don't want to call it a hang-up, but caused a lot of, of discussion between the two? Any particular uh, doctrine or question?
0: Yeah, there were a couple of things. Um, one thing that uh, got us stuck, at least got my wife stuck for quite some time, is um, the Eucharist. And not that she didn't believe in the real presence, but that she did as a Lutheran, and yet the the Catholic Church says, uh, you know, you're not you're not practicing Catholic, so you can't receive communion. And that was um, that was very difficult for her. So she she uh, you know she assented to the church's teaching on the Eucharist, but was unable to receive. And um, and that was kind of uh, one of the the big deals. Um, I think eventually she. She came to understand that. And I think today she would she would say, "Yeah, it makes it makes sense." Well, that was that was difficult. Um, so, and then there are lots of other, um, I, I guess, kind of standard Protestant objections to Catholicism, things like the the saints and purgatory and things like that. But um, what really helped, I think, was uh, sometime in the early '90s when the, the new catechism came out. Um, I remember growing up, and there's really no good source for finding out what the Church or even the Lutherans or anyone else really uh, actually taught. You know, the, the old St. Joseph catechisms were pretty much abandoned, and uh, I remember being told that, well, the Church doesn't believe that stuff anymore. Like, I, it, it's hard to believe that he, you know people would, would have actually told us this. Um, but then you know the, the new catechism came out and that was fantastic because you could you could look up a topic, and whether you believed in it or not, whether you agreed or not, you know what the church actually taught. So there's, you know, you had to be you had to start at the same page at least. Um, uh, so that was that was really nice. And of course, uh, the explosion of information on the internet, um, lots of it's bad, of course, but you know you can if you want to, you can find what the church teaches. All right. So. So there's no excuse today, really.
1: You know, one thing in my recent work—or not work, but my my desire to become more of a of an evangelist—and it's a work in progress, I admit it. But one of the things I've run into, which I was so unexpected for me, was this. I always thought there was a you know, we have we have dogmas, which are divinely revealed uh, truths. Um, And then there are doctrines which are teaching Catholic Church teachings that are substantive and as far as we're concerned to be true, but can be changed. And then there's a whole kind of hierarchy of all that. But when I went to the catechism, it, it doesn't list the dogmas, right? There's It doesn't say, okay, here are the 247 or whatever dogmas of the church, at least in my catechism I have. And I I talked to a priest recently about it, and he kind of scrunched up his face. He goes, yeah, you know, there's this book that came out a long time ago to list them all. And I said, well, shouldn't it be on the Vatican website or in my catechism? He goes, yeah, I don't know. It, It was sort of like, I don't want to say it wasn't important, but you would think that there was some authoritative source for divinely revealed truths about the church. And kind of how I got there, by the way, was I was looking up, uh, I had a question about marriage. And I went through a bunch of different websites and things in this book. And when it used, when it talked about marriage, there's only three dogmas listed on marriage but he didn't use the word man and wife. he always used the word partner. And I was trying to, you know, okay, fine, but how does partner get to man and wife? But I, asking around, I realized that, or looking around especially, the only place I could find dogmas was, was on various websites. I don't know if you've had a experience with these things or not. I was just hoping maybe you could help me out.
0: Uh, yeah, well, ever since... Um you know, the Internet exploded with information. Um, I think I've done the same thing you have. If I really want to understand something, I'll you know, look it up and try to discern what is a good source and what's a, a poor source. Um, and unfortunately, we get sidetracked by a lot of authoritative Catholics themselves. Yeah, I heard a story about some monks in the monastery. When uh, the New Catechism came out, there was a monk walking down the halls, paging through it. And another monk came by and said, you know, that's just one interpretation of what the church teaches. And the other monk said, yes, but it's the correct one. So so finding, you know, the the correct teachings of the church is is very important. I think, you know, again, we can do that if we really want to, but there's a lot of noise out there as well.
1: Yeah. So is there one doctrine or or? teaching the church that, you know, you find kind of most challenging to understand. And, you know, for me, it's always been transubstantiation, believing it, but I'm currently trying to understand it, at least from, say, a philosophical perspective. Um, Oh, by the way, uh, since you did a lot of programming, are you familiar with object-oriented programming? Okay. So this one paper I found on transubstantiation appears to use... The unknowingly, of course, because it's written by a philosopher, but appears to use object-oriented mo- programming model as the basis for explaining transubstantiation, which helped me understand the paper. But you know, it's and it was cool. I, I enjoyed it, but uh, I should send you that. It, it was a very interesting, very interesting read. I, at least I claim it his diagram and language was similar, but um, anyway, so is there one doctrine that you, you you um, find challenging?
0: Um, I wouldn't say there's any particular doctrine of the church that I really have trouble with. Um, You know, like in your example, these are, these are mysteries that we, we have to resort to uh, analogies to try to, to try to comprehend. Um, And I've, I've always been comfortable with what I have, the explanations that I've, I've found um, when I, you know, whenever I go into a deep dive on some of these things. Um, I think one of the most challenging things uh, in, in general, this is not just with, you know, the Catholic Church or Christianity in general, but, you know, it the problem of suffering. Um, you know, why is there so much of it? And, um, and not that there is suffering, but, you know, why is there so much and why does it seem to be so unevenly distributed? Um, And, but I think this is something that the Catholic Church has been dealing with directly for the last 2,000 years, Um, and certainly even before that. If you look in the the Old Testament, the Jewish people have been struggling with this as well. But Christianity gives us uh, at least gives us an answer if we don't necessarily accept it. You know, in the uh, passion, death, and resurrection of of Jesus Christ. You know, so God didn't spare His own Son from from suffering, um, and then his his resurrection redeems us uh, uh, from you know, from our sin and from uh, the suffering that results from that. So, um, you know, I, I don't pretend to understand it in great detail, but um, it's you know libraries are filled with uh, writings about this, and uh, so you know at least the the Catholic Church has you know, hits it hits it directly right from the beginning
1: yeah i think that you know it's probably one of the toughest things to discuss with people about is suffering and and suffering as some form of evil um i think it's the the kind of almost the number one topic that you eventually transact into with any any person who's who either doesn't believe in god um but I know that other religions, like you said, have struggled, like Judaism has struggled. Do, do you see, when it comes to suffering, do you see behind it a actions of a fallen angel, Satan? Or do you see it more as part of God's plan for us?
0: Uh, well, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, now, I guess uh, theologians divide Evil into three different kinds, you know, or originates in the uh, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Um, So you know there there are natural evils like uh, earthquakes and natural disasters, things that cause cause suffering, and you know we don't need a lot of help, I think, to do uh, to cause suffering in the world. You know, it's uh, it's part of our fallen nature, but yeah, um, there's also the devil, um, which again I don't pretend to understand, but um, yeah, things like created entities that decided to disobey God uh, rather permanently. And they can also cause us to to sin and cause suffering in the world. Do
1: do you think that some of the major uh, evils in the world, you know, the sex scandals in the church, um, things like that, do do you think there's a a demonic or the hand of evil behind that to at least encourage that sort of behavior
0: yeah I I would certainly say so that's uh, there, there certainly does seem to be a demonic component to this. Uh, it just seems incomprehensible that um, you know someone who's been trained to be a leader in the church could uh, commit such you know vile acts. Um, so you, you just think there there must be something in addition to just uh, you know human frailty that uh, that allows these things to happen. So, um, yeah, I, I think you're probably right on, on those lines.
1: It's challenging, you know how far to take that that explanation. I know in things I've read about past experiences by um, either at Fatima or in the early 1900s that you know the world wars and and things like that have been were were part of, of an overall plan by Satan or evil to try to compromise the church and, and throw human beings into a very destructive mode and in almost self-annihilation. You know, I don't know how far to take that, that explanation, or at least the pattern of explanation.
0: Yeah, um, yeah you're right. It's, it, it's difficult to know. I mean, again, these are mysteries that we, I guess, it's, we can't really use the scientific process to to understand these things. Um, but, you know, suffering as well, it's, um, God has used suffering though to help redeem us. It's not just something that, you know, I think modern society says suffering is just purely bad. There's nothing good about it and we want to avoid it or get rid of it as, as much as we possibly can. But um, Christianity, especially Catholicism, says that, you no, know, there's a there's utility to suffering. Suffering actually, helps us uh, redeem humanity. Uh, we participate in, in Christ's suffering on the cross. Um, so it's not that we, you know, we look for suffering and we want it to happen, but it can be used for redemption.
1: I went through a period in the 80s when my father had cancer that, uh, you know, I suffered a lot, but at the back end it, it, it helped me put the rest, a lot of the questions and concerns I had about my Catholic faith. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of stories like that out there where people go through these very challenging periods in their life and come out the other end more in tuned and more aligned with what the their Catholic faith. Um, you know, I do hear a lot of stories like that, and you know, especially from personal experience. So we've talked about your your science background quite a bit and your your faith journey, which is <laughs> frankly quite enviable for somebody like me bring them together now you know the problem we have with faith and reason is far too many people view them as in conflict um is incompatible Uh, you know how do you how do you come at this
0: well again when i was growing up um both the faith and education and and in particular science was always highly regarded um uh, i remember watching the cosmos series when i was a and growing up, and I thought that was great. Probably, that probably helped me get into astronomy. Uh, and I never found any conflicts. Um, you know, even even when you realize that some of these people, uh, these science popularizers, might be atheists, you're like, "Well, yeah, show me the evidence." Uh, that's you know that happens to be their opinion. But really, the burden of proof is on those who want to say that there is some kind of a of a conflict. And there is nothing in the teachings of the Catholic Church that um, that seems to contradict contradict science. Um, You know, science, yeah. So truth is independent of what we think about it. Um, And uh, truth can't contradict itself. So if you find things that uh, seem to contradict each other um, and they're both true, well, then your understanding uh, has to be uh, modified or at least one of those propositions is false. Um, And, you know, that's how how I look at it. There again, I, I have never found anything that would be in serious, um, you know, uh, serious challenge to uh, to science, or that science proposes a serious challenge to the faith. Um, so now, that, of course, there are religions who uh, that propose scientific claims, um, and they may or may not conflict with what we understand about science, but that's that's up to them to defend, you know. Um, so, and that's, that's not something I, you know, care to do. Um, but yeah, and uh, you mentioned the Society of Catholic Scientists, I think. Uh, that's a relatively new organization with uh, thousands of Catholic scientists um, also who see no conflict between their faith and their, uh, their scientific work. Um, so again, I think, you know, the burden of proof is on those who want to claim that there's a conflict And every piece of evidence that I have seen has been really unconvincing.
1: There was a, we had a gold mass at um, University of Wisconsin-Madison. Richard Bonomo had had organized for us and we had a speaker who talked about, you know, sort of faith in science and how faith keeps kind of guardrails on science and science in turns informs faith. It was a great talk, but he also gave a talk on and I'll include it on the, sh- on the notes for the show, on the Galileo affair. And my takeaway from Galileo was, was that the church started to realize that it, it can't have a, a preferred, it can't have a position on a preferred science explanation for something, that it simply has to let the scientists do their work, uncover the truth, realize they've made mistakes, uh, in explaining what they found, that it wasn't true after all, and move on, and that the church simply has to say, yes, that whatever scientists find is the truth, uh, and they can change their minds, and we'll change our minds with them, but uh, they'll never be in conflict with our faith. And I, I I keep that in mind, too. I've been reading some new, uh, it's not easy stuff, a mathematical but approach to, uh, how uh, the whole idea of that? How did things come about, uh, and how did the how did the universe was created, and it has to do with certain mathematical objects and how they um, actually created space time. That space time is a natural emergent property of things, and I, I find nothing objectionable about it. It's just a, simply a. a Possible explanation of 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 how things came into existence out of nothing. Now, nothing, of course, doesn't mean the vacuum energy because that's something. Um, so it's but even things like that that are highly speculative. Um, I, I don't find issues with in terms of our faith. I, I don't know if you' there's a new book just came out from Word on Fire uh, called The New Apologetics and I just got it this week, and there was an article in there about uh, quantum mechanics and the you know the interpretation of quantum mechanics, which it's always a dangerous thing to start to do, right? People have gone mad trying to explain quantum mechanics, and so there's been you know a number of interpretations, the many worlds theory, and and so on. But even the one that was proposed in this essay, that is more Aristotelian in nature, yeah, you know, it's obviously not a it it doesn't conflict with church teachings. In fact, the person who wrote it, a Catholic scientist, is trying to make the case that his interpretation of quantum mechanics is superior to the others. I mean, I have a lot of problems with how he kind of dismisses things like the many worlds theories and other, you know, or multi-universe and things so quickly. But when it comes to these larger comprehensive Theories, I, I've never seen anything that would, would that, co- that causes the sort of doubts that you see promulgated in, in, in the, in the, in the uh, mainstream medium or from popular scientists who are also popular atheists.
0: Yeah. And I would, uh, you know, since we mentioned the Society of Catholic Scientists, I'd recommend uh, Steve Barr's book, um, Modern Physics Ancient Faith, where he goes through a lot of these issues as well. Yeah, um, and that's a great book. Yeah, and on the whole, uh, he makes a pretty strong argument that what we have learned in modern physics and astrophysics over the last century or so, uh, rather than uh, coming into conflict with uh, Christianity, is actually um, more supported it than supported a, this idea of atheism. So, you know, for example, the uh, anthropic coincidences, things like that, that uh, today— um, in modern modern physics, we try to explain that using things like the multiverse hypothesis. Uh, you know, that may or may not be true, um, but um, if we really live in you know, multiverse, there are infinite number of you know, so-called universes, um, that wouldn't challenge Christianity because it makes no prediction for such things one way or the other. But it, also, it almost seems, though, that if we could show that there are is only one universe. There aren't any multiverses, and that would be a serious challenge to a lot of uh, a lot of atheists who seem to put their kind of put their eggs in that basket. Um, so there are there are lots of things like that where we see that the more we learn about science, the more concordant it seems to be with with our faith. Not that it proves anything, but uh, we can certainly it is certainly highly reasonable to be theistic and especially to be a Christian. I think with with what we've what's been revealed by modern physics
1: yeah steve's book is a is a great book to read he has an essay in this uh new apologetics book where he goes over those exact things and it's you know it's very powerful it's good too because um i think i'm going to do a podcast reviewing the book because i had some positive and negative reactions to it and i want to take some time spend discussing artificial intelligence because i think people still get that have the wrong interpretation of artificial intelligence they seem to conjure up terminator when all i see is computational statistics so he, he has he he makes some really great points in that book about um what you just said you know four points to refute he also has a talk he gave at the franciscan a uh, conference at the Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio. It's on YouTube, which is a great talk as well. And kind of stepping back when it comes to this, you know, a, you know, you talk about all the information being out there on the web for Catholics. You know, when I s- decided to try to turn myself into some sort of an evangelist number of years ago, you know, I started reading and, you know, I subscribed to the Word on Fire and to the Thomistic Institute and a few others. But there is so much out there, I suddenly realized, you know, I'm not, I'm reading a lot, but I'm not learning and turning myself into an evangelist. And what I realized I needed to do was, I know this may sound silly, but I, I, I realized I kind of had to have a degree in it, which meant I had to take courses, which meant I had to have, you know, various courses with uh, kind of a syllabus, And so what I've started doing is putting that together for myself to, okay, so what different courses do I need in philosophy and theology and other certain sciences I need to get a little smarter on and what do I need to read and how do I, what are my learning objectives? You know, all the traditional educational jargon, but what this book does, it really helps refine that my, at least my curriculum. About what I should focus on and read and learn from um as I you know try to become a a an overt evangelist versus someone who who's who hasn't really you know I, i've it's never been a secret for people who know me, even the ones who disagree with me or don't like me um, but i I found this book to be a really great way of refining my, my curriculum, so to speak. So at at the end of my journey here, I, I at least feel I could have a very strong basis for engaging um, some of the more virulent components of our society and culture.
0: Yeah, really, just an explosion of great stuff that's available these days. But of course, an explosion of bad things as well. And it's it's a signal to noise problem, and you have to wade through it all to find the good stuff. But yeah, things like Word on Fire. The uh, you know, I don't know if you went through the Bible in a year uh, with uh, Father Mike Schmitz. Uh, it, that that's awesome. It's you know, first time in, in history we've really been able to do things like that. So, um, yeah, and I think we're really starting to get back to uh, a lot of the the really interesting substance of the faith. Um, I think one of the things that you know, in in our generation that turned off a lot of people from the church is that the catechesis was just so dull it was boring i mean the only things you needed to know was uh, god is love jesus is your friend and you should be nice to people and everything else was pretty much optional um, you know the uh the the history uh the art the architecture the saints um, just the rich and profound traditions across the different cultures, all of that was kind of set aside. And to discover that is just... Uh just amazing yeah
1: yeah it, the, the quality of, of a number of the artifacts out there for learning is just it's, it's not just so you, you know there's a lot of artifacts out there they're not just interesting to read and challenging, but they're very compelling. They make you want to learn more, to understand more. and that's what one I, I, I like about this new apologetics book but things I um, when I you know I've taken some of the courses at Hillsdale, dot uh, edu on um, uh, philosophy, that and then some of the stuff from the Thomistic Institute it just it's not just interesting to read to, but it motivates you to go learn more, which is oh, not an easy thing to do when you think about it. Right? Yeah,
0: and uh, I mean, we've been very lucky here being at Saint Vincent because uh, it's you know we can take a lot of these courses for free, you know, taught in the in the monastery, so that's that's been really nice too. So yeah, and um, exactly. The, the more you learn, the more you, the more you want to learn. And, uh, you know, it's just finding the time to do it is, is really the difficult part.
1: Kind of come to the last topic I always cover with people was, you know, is there anything you'd like to cover yourself or discuss that you find, um, it's compelling or something you want to, um, go over?
0: Well, kind of outside of what we've been, we've been talking about, um, I like to, um, uh, express my support for one of your previous guests. Um, uh, I think Kara Westmark was her name. And you two had talked about the uh, response to COVID-19 by the church and uh, in the medical community. And um, yeah, I find a lot of the same things that you two are talking about. Um, you know, it's I've not been trained in the, in the medical field, but I think a lot of us over the past couple of years, sort of became an uh, you know, amateur um, epidemiologist, you know, reading just, remember, I must have read hundreds of papers. Um, and what I have found from, you know, the peer-reviewed scientific literature uh, very often seems very discordant with what our public health officials have been telling us. And, you know, that's very, that's very disturbing. And it hasn't been, uh, we haven't resolved that at this point. So I, I just want to um, you know, recommend people to listen to that podcast. Uh, as, Thank yeah, you coming, very much. Coming from someone yeah. who's, a, who's a medical researcher, not a not an astrophysicist.
1: Yeah, she's she's wonderful, Kara. I met her at the Gold Mass, and uh, she and her sister are were, were quite um, brilliant. Now, let me ask you this. Uh, hopefully I'm not putting you on the spot, but... You know, I made the kind of smart alecky comment that I thought our our bishops got rolled with regard to shutting down the churches, and that they shouldn't have done that, and it set a bad precedent. Do do you agree or disagree with that? I would say I absolutely agree.
0: Yeah, I think the you know the federal government first of all has no business telling churches what to do. Um, they certainly can recommend whatever they like. Um, you know, but. I think that, um, you know, not just our bishops, but the public in general was very poorly informed about what the science was really showing us.
1: Do, do you think our, our leadership, I mean, I realize they're following the science, but how, how what, and this is where, you know, my talking to our priest didn't really get very far was, how does a bishop justify shutting a church and the fact that we could still go to Walmart and Target?
0: Yeah, it's a it's a good question. I don't think anyone's been able to adequately answer that. Yeah. yeah,
1: and I don't I don't answer. You know, you always try to be respectful, but you know, being from New Jersey, I'm I'm not. I, I sometimes have trouble with authority, and uh, just ask my father. But yeah, I was, you I know, was
0: born I, in New Jersey. So was, really, where uh, Trenton. Uh, oh okay yeah my my dad was there he was he was teach- he i think he got out of vietnam to uh you know to to teach in, in trenton and I'm not sure which one was more dangerous actually but <laughs> but i don't i don't remember we we left uh we left there when I was pretty young but uh, yeah.
1: yeah 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 in jersey was where i grew up too it was a a fairly tough um fairly high crime area very very I mean you kind of had to know how to take care of yourself but but I I you know the the they it's I just felt that they 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 should have recognized that this was a precedent setting event and so the next time some similar event comes around which which compromises our ability to worship and to receive the Eucharist and to receive the holy sacraments I'm hoping that they they act differently. Uh, um, it, but the problem is, given that it was, we have this present now with COVID that it's going to be much tougher.
0: Yeah, I think so. And I have tried to speak to people a lot, you know, lots of people, people in the, you know, um, people in the church, other, actually speaking to other scientists uh, who have just been entirely misinformed about the whole thing. Um, yes. Like scientists who I thought, you know, if I present the, like, here's a stack of papers, you know, on, you know, thousands of thousands of scientists like us have done the research and here's what they find. And here it is. And just the the unwillingness to even look at those things. And like we we must trust what our uh, unelected public health officials tell us. Um, Yeah, it's it's still deeply disturbing. I hope things change in the future, but you know, I, um, I, I, we got to pray about it. I
1: think. Yeah, I think it's a great topic. Um, yeah. yeah, you're right to ask for intervention of the Holy Spirit to help people, um, and I think it will. I think this time around, there's been a, a recognition of what you just said, and unfortunately, on the decision-making side, our unelected government officials. You know they react to incentives, and unfortunately, the incentives aren't so aligned with with properly uh, characterizing the science research
0: as it is with other incentives. Yeah, right. I think the uh, early on the uh, this whole COVID nineteen issue uh, became politicized, and right then the science became detached from public policy. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I'm hoping that. Next time around,
1: those who have the proper viewpoint of of you know what is the science saying, what are the what even if it's an unpopular outcome, will will assert themselves more fully, um, and you, know, you pray for that. You pray for people who have the strength to do that. Um, you know, certainly, I, I when I, if we reach another situation and the bishops decide maybe we should shut the churches down you know i may very well get a protest permit outside of the bishop's office in in milwaukee um I, i'm i'm almost at that point where i i, I really w- will not sit back and let that happen and and i don't think i'm hoping other people feel the same way that they simply cannot you know we cannot shut the churches down um it's just it's just unacceptable so well, listen, Dan, thanks so much. It's been great, great conversation. Um, I'm glad we revisited uh, my old stomping ground of, of extragalactic astronomy mm-hmm. and space astrophysics and all. And uh, I wish you the best of luck. Yeah. And thanks so much for joining us.
0: And thanks for inviting me.